Amen. Worthy is the Lamb. Thank you, Jessica. Good morning, Rick. You came in after the, the, the announcements and the introductions, but it's good to see you. Old friend of New Covenant Fellowship, Rick Lehman, good to see you this morning. I came into this sanctuary early this morning, as is my habit, and was a little disappointed because it's been stripped of much of its beauty from the, from the Christmas decorations. And um, <clears throat> Lisa came to the church Saturday to, to walk and run and was gone a long time and was kind of getting worried about her. And so when she got back, I said, what? Took you so long, I know you didn't run that long. Um, she said, well, there's lots of people there. I talked to Michelle and the Hills and the Lurzers. Oh, what were the Lurzers doing? Well, they were taking down the Christmas decorations. Ah, I wish they wouldn't have done that. It's just a week too soon. Are they here this morning? They gone. Oh, they're in the back. Okay. Just a week too soon because this Sunday is, it's really still a part of the Christmas celebration. It's an important Sunday on the church calendar, if you follow that. It's Epiphany Sunday. So I saw that the the um, church was bare Epiphany Sunday celebrates when the Magi came and offered their gifts to the Christ child. That's an important part of the Christmas story, only to walk up to the front and see the three wise men. This is exactly what they look like back in that day, <laughs> had a glitter to them and they did not forget. They did not disappoint. So thank you uh, well done, and we are still in a Christmas season celebrating the birth of Christ. Now, I only get to say this once a year, so um, it's good to see you. Haven't seen you since last year, and you haven't changed a bit. I know I say that every year, but I only get to say it once a year. I would say Happy New Year to you, and uh, as you consider your New Year's resolutions, as you consider what changes you will make in your life in 2019 to better yourself, um, I would encourage you to consider joining one of our community groups. We have a large footprint. We have groups in Victoria. We have a group in Victoria. We have a group in uh, Burkeville, a group in Farmville, a group that meets sometimes in Blackstone and Crew. I think so. It's a wide footprint, lots of opportunity for ministry. And there's a lot of great growth that takes there. So just a, an encouragement to think about that. And I know that we go through seasons of our lives where you can't be at every church event. You can't do it all. And that's true. Um, but this is a great opportunity. And they're designed to help us grow in our personal godliness. And they're designed to help us grow in our godly relationships. The Bible, as we'll see in this morning's text is constantly challenging us to live as kingdom people. And much of that involves how we interact with one another. How we interact with one another is is very important. And it is meant to be a witness to the watching world of, well, what kind of changes does this God bring into your life? What happens when you give your life to Christ or he becomes your Lord? How does it play out in your families and your marriages and the way you interact with the person that sits on your left and right. And so our community groups really help um, with accountability, with loving one another, caring for one another. The community group leaders meet biannually and they join the elders and the deacons um, just to pray together, to touch base about the groups and, and um, encourage one another. And we met this past week. And I can honestly say 
that these group leaders have a heart for you. They have a heart for you and they're willing to invest in you. They're willing to make the necessary sacrifices, open up their homes, take the time to prepare, invest themselves in your lives so that you can grow in Christ. So it's um, just an encouragement to think about that in this season of your life. Food for thought. Speaking of food for thought, we are in Matthew chapter 18. It's a it's a chapter that actually is devoted to God's people. It really is aimed at his children, his disciples. John MacArthur goes so far as to call it the greatest discourse for the church, for the people. And we have been looking at Matthew chapter 18 and just made it through the first part of our sermon for last week. So I thought for today we would go ahead and look at the second part of our passage this morning. But in the first part, just by way of reminder, the chapter opens and the disciples ask a question. And I'm not going to go back and reread it all, but you'll recall that um, <clears throat> they were on their way to Capernaum and they were in the house. But but on their way, they were arguing about something. And it was heated enough to where Jesus took note. Now, it's interesting that I don't know what was going on at this time, but Jesus didn't stop them. Like we might as parents tell our children, stop arguing, stop that fussing. What are you talking about? Let's work this out right away. But for whatever reason, they were in an argument and it wasn't until they got to the house where Jesus brought it up. You know, by the way, I heard you guys um, get in quite a discussion, a heated discussion on the way here. What were you talking about? And that's when I guess they kind of figured, well, oh, you heard that. Well, since you heard it, I might as well go ahead and tell you what it is. We were wondering, who is the greatest in the kingdom? So that that. Addressing that question about our place in the kingdom of God and and um, how we relate to one another just carries this entire chapter. So who is the greatest? So we looked at that question. How do you measure greatness? We immediately saw that just by the fact, by virtue that they were arguing about this idea of how hierarchies work, who's in charge, who gets to be the boss, they were already suffering from the envy and the strife that comes with the world's idea of measuring greatness. You, you have to obtain it by being aggressive, stepping on other people's heads to make it to the top. Just, it's inherently evil when it's done with that kind of motive. And sure, God raises and lowers. There are people that are powerful and wealthy and well-educated, and there are people not so much. But when it comes to, to kingdom Ways or kingdom measurements. We don't look at each other like that is the teaching. So he says he uses a child as a metaphor and he pulls a child up and he says, when it comes to even getting into the kingdom, while y'all are arguing about, well, who's the greatest? But just to even get in, you have to be you have to turn and become like this child and turn and become is conversion words. You have to change. You got to be changed to get in. You can't get in like that. You have to change. And the operative word was their humility. And we learn that children look at the world differently. They're not quite, they haven't matured in a worldly way to where we're, they're classifying people like we do as adults. Now, how can I use you to get what I want and objectify you? And 
and how I want to be viewed as someone very, very important and how important it is to me for my self-sense of worth and security. And children don't really look at the world like that yet. So there's this idea of dependency. They're dependent on others. They're dependent on the grown-ups. And to come into the kingdom of God, we have to realize our great dependency upon God. And it's only by grace that we get in. And when we're in, we come in humbly and we stay humble. It's just an attitude of the kingdom that we're always to strive for. And when we lose it, we start thinking about selfish ambition and, and self-worth based on our greatness. Then things begin to crumble. And that's where envy and strife begin. And so Jesus kind of defines, he begins to define greatness based on not your worldly achievement. That's not the focus, not that it's wrong to be in positions of power, but the motive behind it. The whole way that we are to view one another, once you humble yourself and become like a child and you get into the kingdom, is our worth and our value is based on who we are in Christ. It's just a whole different working platform of how we value each other. And in the world, this division, this strife of fighting for who's at the top, it, it causes us to look at one another not, um, at, well, it causes us to look at one another as threats to each other, as threats to my importance. Whereas God says, no, you, we have so much. Everyone has personal value because they are my child. I put it upon them and, and they're gifted. I give them gifts to serve one another in the kingdom. So it's based on the relationship with me. Everybody in God's kingdom has an important part to play. And it reminds me of some of the struggle that we that we have as a body of Christ, um, feeling connected and apart. It's been brought up here in our church, a personal little church family problem. There are people that periodically will go through seasons where they think, I do not feel connected to this body. I don't feel apart. And you would be surprised how many people actually bring that up. And it's people who you would look at and say, well, surely they wouldn't say it because like they're major players here at the church. And I, so that's just something that we struggle with. And I think it's twofold. One is, of course, our church can always do better at reaching out to one another, grabbing the hand of your brother and sister and reminding them of the importance of their presence and their ministry. But the other thing is, I think, is the enemy has a little bit of lie, a, a lie, a powerful lie that he just kind of spreads and it like takes turns in people's lives that you're not connected and you don't belong. But one of the things that this passage um, kind of subversively teaches is that just to be in Christ, you belong like you can't not belong when God says, no, I adopt you as a family member. You are you're an important kingdom player because nowhere in Scripture does it talk about. That, that there's a worthlessness among the people of God. When you have the treasure of Christ in your heart, you, you have the power of the Holy Spirit to change. Humble people do great things for the kingdom of God. And so just as another challenge, I guess, to work out in our in our care groups, maybe our community groups to talk or dialogue among ourselves is to, to face this lie. With the truth, and that is you absolutely are connected. God's already told us that even if we go through seasons when we don't feel like it. You couldn't be more apart. You couldn't be more connected. That's what the scriptures say. 
So this passage even helps us, I think, in that. So the kingdom view of greatness turns out actually to be a person that just completely depends on God. And a person that remains humble. And, is, and the important thing is Christ and exalting Christ, not self. And then the second point kind of looks at how do we apply that? You say, okay, if that's what kingdom greatness is, that I'm humble and that I, I value my brothers and sisters, you know, in-house based on that we all have Christ in common, that we're all sinners. We all come into the kingdom in the same way by undeserved grace. How does that play out, my perception of other people's worth? How does that, what does that look like as I interact? What does that look like on a daily basis? And so we look uh, now at the kingdom road to greatness. How to translate this into our lives. And I want to remind you that beginning in verse 5, when Jesus talks about children or little ones and he's using these endearing terms... A transition has taken place. He did use a real life child as a metaphor to teach his disciples. But from now on, any talk about children or little ones, he's literally talking about believers. He's talking about children of the kingdom. So we want to keep that in mind. The way that this translates, this idea of how we view one another, um, as opposed to taking advantage of one another, Translates first in our relationship to others. So let's read chapter 18, verses 6 and 7. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Two things just immediately jump out of that passage to me. First of all, God's great care and protection for his children. Like you, you just, it oozes with attentiveness. God is so in tune with his children. He knows any maliciousness any evil that, that comes our way as his children. And he knows by whom or through whom it comes. And these are his kids. And he is letting everybody that would care to know that you are in big trouble if you are going to be one of those people that, that entices his kingdom children with sin. And he uses that term that we hear frequently from the prophets in the Old Testament. Woe unto you. Woe is you. And it's that term of judgment and doom. And the, the idea is that because of what you're doing, because of your relationship with God and how you're living, basically, I pity you because you have this dark cloud of doom and judgment just waiting to pounce on you. Woe is you, I pity you, for what is to befall you regarding the wrath and the judgment of God. Boy, do you have it coming to you, is the idea, even if you don't realize it. So, God is very protective 
of his people. And in this passage, he even talks about angels in the last parable of the sheep. The angels are looking out after us. God is looking after us. Any interaction we have with other people, the Lord is aware of it. The second thing I think that we, that pops out of this text is that he's really challenging God's people to take care of each other's moral purity. It's very important to him that in the way we live for him and interact, that we truly, truly care for each other's moral purity, each other's soul. We don't we don't look down on each other when we're, we're vying for power, so to speak, but rather we truly care for each other. And that care is manifested in a way of caring for our moral purity. There's different ways to care for people. And this is what zero uh, what Jesus emphasizes. Caring about your neighbor's heart and soul and how pure it is. Like when. Talk about countercultural. When is the last time you ever read a book or watched a movie where you the message was you really need to care about the purity of your neighbor's soul? Like you don't ever hardly ever hear that in our culture. That is not a teaching that's driven home. What is driven home is that you really, really need to care about yourself. You really need to go to great lengths to care about yourself so that you get what you want in life. Because you don't want to cut yourself short. And that might include actually abusing or taking advantage of your neighbor. And that's okay in this culture. It's kind of like expect. It's like getting a good deal. Taking advantage. So we're, we're taught not to care for others and their moral purity, but to care for ourselves and to fight to exercise our own freedoms, which is defined in our culture as the freedom to do whatever you want. And you can't say a thing about it because this is a free country, right? Of course, that freedom cannot be sustained in reality where everybody gets what they want. Because then it, it, leads to, it leads to clashes like we have. But that's the idea in our culture. That's what we're kind of taught. That subversive message is, look, you're, you're a precious Thing and you should withhold no good thing from yourself. And if that requires you stepping on other people to get it, then you, then you do it because you have every right and freedom to do that. Rather than making sure that we're not a part of temptation. When's the last time somebody, even in the kingdom of God, warned you or or showed, expressed a care for your moral purity? Our culture goes so far as making, rather than avoiding tempting one another, making some things actually safe and convenient. So you think about um, the, the poor, dreadful addictions that are taking place in our culture. And we have a mindset, well, if you're going to do, since you're going to do it anyway, then let's give you clean needles. Or you can go even farther and think about our young people and sexual promiscuity. And you say, well, since they're going to do it anyway, then let's just give them condoms so they can have safe sex. And I think, isn't that kind of what 
at least a little bit what Jesus is talking about here is making sin easier for people, even tempting them farther to stay in it, save them from any consequences from it. I mean, do, do we accommodate sin in that way in our lives? And Jesus uses very, very severe terminology here. He's saying that people make the world evil. Evil, temptation, enticement to be bad, to do wrong, to think wrong, often comes through, primarily for us, comes through other people. That's how it works. He's teaching us how it works. And in essence, he's saying, since that's how it works... And evil is pushing to come through and to touch anybody it can. Don't you be that person. Don't you be that channel of evil. It gets real personal. Jesus puts faces to it. And that's something else we're really not used to in our culture. We like to keep things very generic in general. So we like to make statements like our nation is just going to the hell in a handbasket. As if it's just something that's going to happen and we have no say in it. We can't do anything about it. But if, if what Jesus is saying tr is true, that actually evil and bad things come through other individuals, then more accurately, it could be said, yeah, we're not as holy as we used to be or the bright light that we used to be because of individual decisions. Or we could say today, you know, the church just isn't what it used to be. And that may be very accurate, but if it is accurate, it's because of individual daily grind decisions to not be fervent for God, to not live for God, to not care about Christ's church, to, to not make it vibrant. It's, it happens through the power of God and individual choices. It's not just like we, if we all just looked at each other and shook our heads and say, yeah, the church just isn't what it used to be. How does that help? Even though it's true. But Jesus makes this very personal. And he says it's not easy. And he even he even grants us that the world is filled with wickedness. And you, you do get the pressure. You, you, you get the truth here in what we feel every day. And what we feel every day. You ever just feel squeezed by evil? Like it's coming at you from every direction, any opportunity through the, the airwaves, the TV, through other people, through, I mean, everything, the news. It's like evil is wanting to overcome us. And that's actually true. There's this constant, almost like an atmospheric pressure for evil to push its way into our lives any way it can get in there. Always looking for a vessel. And Jesus is giving this teaching. Yeah, it's out there. And it's hard. Temptations, they're, they're, they're coming, they're coming, they're coming. But don't let them come through you. Don't you be the one. You have to be, in order to not be the one, I guess, battle ready, you might say. We have to constantly be aware that evil wants to use us as a channel and therefore fight it off. Be of present mind and we have the armor of God. And all of the other scriptures in the New Testament, there's so many ways that God has equipped us 
as the church and the people of God to fight evil so that we're not the vessels of evil. So we need to be battle ready. Take every thought captive, the scriptures say. Why? Because evil wants to get in your head. It wants, it's going to keep on pushing. It doesn't give up in your lifetime. I'm always amazed by Christians that are um, physically old and very godly mature Christians. And you like, like, I'd like to think that when you get that age, God kind of backs off. And he doesn't keep pressing in to make you even more holy. But everybody I talk to is like, oh man, God is working in me. I'm just thinking, ah, man, you're like in your 80s. When do you ever get a break? And you don't. Because God cares that much for our hearts. And all of this work, being battle ready, taking every thought captive, by the way, it's really what's good for us. It's love. It's just God's love. And you'll see this passage actually oozes with love. So it's, it's very personal. Don't be the one. Keep the king in your head. Get Christ in your head. Get Christ in your heart every day. Bring him in. Let, let him push in through every little channel and every little crack. And that's necessary. It's got to be aggressive. God says, seek him. Now, just to be clear, we're not talking about, for the most part, um, being an instrument for one sin. You know, you slipped in front of another brother. It's, that, that's not really the idea so that we're walking on pins and needles. The idea is that you are being an instrument of evil by this constant temptation and co- coaxing of another believer to, to get them into a li- this lifestyle, which really draws them away from God. And it's kind of like the example of the millstone that he uses. And maybe you've seen pictures of it. It's a tremendously big, heavy rock that rolls around in a tray or a trough. And um, as it rolls around, and usually it has beasts of burdens connected to it so that they take this stone and slow them. And then they put the grain under it. And that constant, here it goes, wonders one time, it crushes the grain a little bit, comes back around. It's just a slow process. And... You're left with powder. It's the idea of this slow process of coaxing and tempting and coaxing and tempting. Come on over here and check this out. Look at this. Drawing our brothers and sisters away from God. And Jesus says it'd be better. Woe to you. You know, it would really be better in his perspective if you just put one of those millstones around your neck and jumped into the ocean. Now, what would happen is you're going to sink really fast and you are not going to stop sinking until you hit the bottom. Because that's the way rocks interact with water. They don't float. They're dense. It's a grim picture. And Jesus in this passage is using hyperbole. He is using very strict terminology to get our attention Of the severity of it. That's a kingdom perspective that we need to have on moral purity in each other. We don't want to be that channel. The world likes to call it unfortunate or a statistic or just some kind of 
force that happens and you can't do anything about it. And Jesus is actually saying, actually, you can do something about it. You can take personal responsibility and make right decisions. That's how it ends. That's how it stops. That's the hope of the gospel and the glory is a changed heart. We actually can do something about it, change the tide. And it requires us doing the hard work of making personal decisions of loving God. It's interesting, Corky said in his prayer, it just blows my mind that you can glorify God in eating. I was thinking, how do you glorify in eating? And then I, then I thought, well, you're supposed to chew for so many minutes and get it. And then I said, no, that's the physical stuff. That's not it. That's the, it's, it's the attitude of thanking God for every juicy bite of life. Or thanking God that I even have a bean or a piece of rice to eat. You know, it's that whole attitude. Isn't it amazing that we can even glorify God in eating and drinking? It's taking a sip of water. It's incredible. And yet that's our reality as kingdom kids. Everything we can do. Sitting there, listening, we can glorify God by having a heart that's striving, not doing everything perfect, but just striving to love Him more. Give Him thanks for everything. Bring all of our lives in submission to His Lordship. The world is evil because people are evil. You don't have to look any farther than ourselves. When you put a face on it, it changes things, doesn't it? And that, that's exactly what Jesus does to his children. You're children of the kingdom. Don't be a vessel of evil for your brothers and sisters. Don't introduce them. Who introduced you to your very first pornographic picture? Who introduced you to the idea of sexual promiscuity? Who tempted you to be greedy? Who tempted you to be proud? Who taught you so well to grumble against God and constantly be discontent? Who who tempted you or enticed you to live in fear or faithlessness? Who tempted you to turn to drugs or alcohol as the ultimate escape? Who tempted you to be lazy in life, to use other people? Who tempted you, enticed you to think like a racist or misogynist, to objectify people? Who taught you to hate so intensely? Who taught you how to gossip so well? To slander so well? Who taught you how to be so self-righteous? Who taught you how to just be a mediocre Christian instead of one that actually is constantly pressing in to get to know God? These are things that are surrounding us in our everyday life. Temptations to do all of these. All the sins in the Bible. And they come from within, but they come from without as well. And Jesus is simply saying in the kingdom, don't be that one. It's hard. You're going to be surrounded with it. Don't be that one to drag my child. Woe unto you. So we care for each other's 
moral purity of all things. And the second way that it's manifested in this teaching, that we apply this view to one another, we see in verses 8 through 9. And it's in relationship not to others. Then he turns it to ourselves. And he says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet or to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So I guess it stands to reason. One thought, I thought, why didn't you say this first? Get your life clean and then don't cause others to sin. But he says in relationship to others, care about their moral purity. But really the only way you're going to be successful with that is if you care about your own moral purity. If you care about your own relationship with God. And again, he uses very stark hyperbole here. It's, it's shock speech. It's like, wow, what? Cut it off. Ooh, ah, and you just feel yourself in pain, writhing in pain at this. And that's how Jesus wants us to feel. Because the idea is that sin is the ultimate bad with the ultimate consequence. It separates us from God. And God alone is life. And he wants us to get the picture of reality. And that is when it comes to sin, that's really the enemy. It separates you from God. And if you're separated from God, you will live in eternal damnation. Suffering and pain separated from the goodness and the grace of God forever. And that's a terrible thing. Therefore, it just makes sense if there's something that's just temporal in your life. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. If it's keeping you separated from God, get rid of it. This, there's this rich treasure of a relationship that God draws us into. And if, and if it's keeping us as a hindrance or an obstacle, you just sever yourself from that thing rather than remaining severed from God. So he says, cut your hand off if that's the source of sin. It's not to be taken literally. This is not a good time to attend one of those backwoods Bible churches that takes every word of God literally. So that the congregation can't even lift their hands to the Lord in praise because they've taken this passage literally and they've severed their hands. We know from other teachings that if my eye is causing me to lust and I literally pluck it out, did I, set, did I solve my sin problem? No. Because Jesus taught previously that the sin problem actually is here. It's a spiritual thing. So even if I pluck both eyes, I'm not going to completely rid myself of my problem of lust because it needs to be dealt with here. So don't take this literally. But it is intended to have shock value. Get rid of it. Be radical. It's, it's a radical statement. Now how? Again, I asked the question... Are there times in our Christian lives, no matter where we are on the spectrum of maturity, that calls for radical decisiveness? Where there's something there, whether it's a computer, whether it's money, something that's serving as our God, it's, it's causing us to, to lose our grip. 
where we have to put our foot down and say, that's it. I can't handle it. Other people can handle it, but I can't handle this. It's messing my relationship up and I'm not going to take it another moment. I'm going to get it out. I'm going to get rid of it. I'm going to throw it out. I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to do something. We want to look at things so practically and financially and, and, well, I can't do that. I mean, I paid good money for it. Jesus is saying there's times where you just have to look at things. What's temporal and what's eternal? You know what? That temporal thing, you can't take it with you anyway. You just got to get rid of it sometimes. We don't see a whole lot of that. Jesus calls for it. Evil in this world is always looking for a channel. Don't let that your heart be that channel in your life or in others. Trust in God. Rely on God. Don't be the one. Don't get cut off guard. And then it amuses me that after such harsh words, a harsh teaching to his disciples, then he tells this story. It's a story, it's a parable that we're all familiar with and we'll just close with that. Verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. See God's care for his little ones. Don't look down on them. Value them. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. After this harsh, sobering message, this is a pure message of grace. Because he's saying, don't you dare sin. And don't you dare cause your brother and sister to sin. And I'm the kind of God that goes after the ones that have strayed. And I pursue you. The ones that have failed. The ones that are weak. The ones that did allow that evil to channel through them. And they strayed away. I go after him. It just oozes with grace. It oozes with care. I love the balance in the scriptures where God says, this is not permissible. Do not do this. I love you and I'm coming after you. Even though that's there, it doesn't separate. Of course, we know that's because of the work of Christ, the precious work of Christ. We see this balance here. God cares Greatly, if they do go astray, he seeks them. But this grace is not to be taken for granted. Notice that he says, if I find him, if he is found, there's the idea that it's possible that he won't be found. Have you ever run from God or do you know people that basically spend their lives kind of like being that one sheep and almost taking pride in it and seeing how far away they can get and say, "Okay, God, now it's your job to come get me. Some people don't want to be found. Some people love their sin too much. But the father, it won't be on the father. It will be on the individual. So we don't want to play games and tempt God. For those that would be found. Look at the, 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 um, the result is just great rejoicing. Kill the fatted tofu. 
Break out the carrot sticks and the celery sticks. It is time to feast. So it's tremendous rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents. Now, this actually is in the this parable is used in the context of believers. So when our when we repent, God rejoices. In Luke, and John brought that message to us not so long ago, in Luke, Jesus preaches the same parable in relation to seeking after those that don't believe at all. Lost sinners. So it's it's the father's care for lost sinners, but it's the father's care for his own children. In context here. Isn't it interesting that the way we love one another and we care for one another, the way we esteem one another is actually caring about people's moral purity? Because that's a big danger. We live in a world that just wants to love in a doty way. We want to we want to manifest love to one another that just says, I I'm tolerant of anything you do, any thoughts you have. Be self-destructive, change your gender. It just doesn't even matter. There's really no standard for it. There's no measure for it. Just ooze love. But you know what that does? That's just the sick helping others stay sick. The standard for this, the way God approaches things, and sometimes they they hurt, but it's to make us better. It's to heal us. Because we have to be involved in one another's moral purity in order to truly help somebody. If I just put my arms around you and you are living in sin, am I helping to heal you? So it's being called to a basis of standard. It's, it's requiring that we actually know right and wrong and not just calling everything right. So the message of the world really is just another bad idea that keeps us in sin. The message of Scripture calls us out of it. God says, I care for your heart. And I know every one of you are broken. And yes, even if you're a disciple, even if you've been with me, you have burdens. And I know your heart hurts. And a lot of it is because of your self-imposed sinful habits, your way of looking at life, your way of looking at me. And I want you to set free. I want to set you free from this. In order to do that, you have to look at yourself in the world through what I say is truth. My grid, I give it to you as a gift. And it requires purity. You can't just keep it. It's a cancer. It's where it leads us. So he closes with such a message of grace and tender care. So we conclude by saying as disciples of Christ, we need to be different in the way we view people and the way we Think about power and hierarchies. And when you come in here, in the sanctuary of God, we look at one another as those who know God. And that in of itself is something to be impressed by and embraced by. And we want to care for one another's hearts and not be that vessel of temptation. And the way we become great in the kingdom is by following he who is the greatest. And that would be Christ the king. Follow him. He is humble. And lowly of heart. He is the greatest servant. His children are humble. We don't put on airs. We love each other. As little dependent children of God. This is God's holy word. And I pray that he will bless it to our hearts this morning.